Welcome to Perspectives Unsettled, a podcast that exists to challenge our assumptions about faith and move the average Christian from status quo into boldness in action. I'm your host, Emily Luttrell. And I'm Ben Stewart. And I'm Jeff Bunting. And we are back to continue our conversation that we started on the last podcast. Um, And this time we're going to keep talking about the persecuted church. So typically we start with like a fun little icebreaker question where we have the opportunity to embarrass each other. Um, but it didn't really feel right this time. Yeah. Sorry guys. I just, it, it did, the transition just wasn't working. So thanks for being flexible to our listeners. So we are just going to go ahead and jump right in. According to the world watch list from open doors, more than 360 million Christians are persecuted for their faith which is one in seven believers. In Africa, one in five Christians face persecution, and in Asia, it's two in five Christians. At Uncharted, three out of our six locations are rated as experiencing either very high or extreme levels of persecution. And the experiences of our field partners there range from being rejected by friends and family, difficulties finding work or acceptance in a community, uh, to even threats of violence or death. And the boldness and courage of these Christians is admirable, but they also need support. And we, as their family, need to stand with them. In 1 Corinthians 12, the church is talked about as one body, how we as Christians are unified in the spirit, and each part of the body needs the others. And it also says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. It can be pretty easy to think of persecution as something that happens to people far away from me, and it's sad, but what am I going to do about it? But as members of the body of Christ, we don't really have the option not to care. And we have a responsibility to suffer alongside our brothers and sisters and to not lose hope. So today we're back with Jeff Bunting to continue our conversation on the persecuted church. And we're asking questions like, what actually is real persecution? How do we stand alongside our brothers and sisters experiencing it? And where can we find hope? So as we start, I think it's probably helpful to maybe define our terms a little bit. Um, because most people listening to this probably have an understanding of what persecution means, but, um, do one of you guys want to maybe take a stab at what are we talking about when we say people experience persecution? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe start uh, with a bit of an answer there. And I think, you know, this isn't a textbook definition, but, uh, generally speaking, I think it's, when I think of persecution, well, what comes to mind is hardship that people face as a result of their faith, either just simply by being a Christian, they're facing this hardship, they're facing this difficulty, or uh, as a result of living out their faith, of, of sharing with others, of doing things that are visible in the community that might even go against local laws, um, their lives are in danger, they face anything from just social ostracization, um, isolation, or you know, their lives are actually uh, on the line. They might go to jail, they might be killed, that sort of thing, and then all, all sorts of Uh, different possibilities between that, but that's as a result of their faith in Jesus. Yeah, I think maybe one of the elements I would add to that too is just um, there's there's the unifying element of it's a it's a a egregious attack on on their basic human rights, right? So like the right the right to flourishing, the right to safety, the right to um, basic human needs, um, the right to physical (laughs) health and well being. Um, there's some sort of intentional affront. So, so not even just like uh, accidental or, or you know, 
passive, but there's a there's an intentional affront um, or attack on on what we would consider basic human rights. Um, and and like Jeff said, because of um, the the particular faith that they are living out. Um, and so there's a variety of ways in which that persecution could look. And yet it's tied back to um, here are those fundamental basic human rights that are being attacked and, and affronted. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ben. And, and one, one thing that comes to mind, too, is I think a lot of times um, in the world, people can be persecuted is probably not the right word for it, but they can face difficulties. They might be a believer or, I mean, truly persecution can happen to people of other faiths also. But as a member of that faith, as a follower of Jesus, they might face persecution, but really a lot of what they're facing actually comes from the fact that uh, they're just not being very nice to their neighbors. They're not uh, doing things in a way that makes them a good neighbor. And so uh, you can probably come up with all, all kinds of examples of how that might be true in a given case, but that's not truly persecution. If I'm a jerk to the person next door and I face hardship because of that, that's not actually persecution, even if I am in a minority faith group or something like that. Um, and so true persecution is really, it's beyond just, you know, the the way that I'm uh, relating to neighbors and things like that. And so if, if my if my actions aren't a direct result of my faith, aren't really the source of what I'm facing, then, then that, that's probably not persecution at the same time. You know, if I am doing something very simple, I'm, I'm trying to be honoring to others, uh, I'm living you know, for Jesus, um, or again, uh, another faith could, could also apply. And that is really what all that I'm facing is coming from, then there's a pretty good chance that, yeah, that is persecution. And not to jump ahead to a lot of scriptural context yet, but that is, I mean, to um, affirm what you're saying, Jeff, that uh, Peter talks about that in First Peter chapter 3, I think it is, where he says, you know, he basically says, if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing the righteous thing, yeah. suffer for doing right. the good thing. Like, don't don't behave in such a way where you suffer for doing dumb stuff. That's obviously a bridge version there. But that's the message version. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, to your point, um, it's a suffering as a result of living a righteous, a righteous life. We sort of use that Peter language. And it can be hard um, because it is a pretty broad spectrum. Like we are saying, um, it can be isolation from family and it can also be like torture and death. So it's kind of hard. Um, I think a lot of the times as Western Christians, our culture is we try to relate to people, um, and try to find things that we can identify with them, which is in a lot of ways, great, um, an empathetic response. And in some ways it's like, um, oh, I experienced that too because, you know, the person at Starbucks said happy holidays to me instead of Merry Christmas. Um, and that is n not what we're talking about here. <laughs> this is like yeah. um, hostility uh, as opposed to like discomfort even. Um, but at the same time, for somebody experiencing uh, isolation from their community day after day because of their faith, that's not minor either um so there is a wide spectrum and i think like it needs to be taken seriously actually i think maybe that's kind of the problem that i feel like is running into like as christians in uh north america we 
kind of de- devalue people's experiences when we equate some of the things that we experience to theirs. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, for, for much of the U.S. history, uh, Christianity has been the norm, um, both in terms of percentages, but also just how how the average person thinks and kind of what's normal. And so sometimes, you know, losing that privileged status as we begin to, to move into a more, you know, postmodern, post-Christian society, um, losing that privileged status or no longer being kind of the assumed norm of society that feels like persecution. It feels like this really dramatic thing. And, and in, in some ways it is hard for people. It's genuinely difficult for people to see that. Um, it feels weird, you know, when they experience some of those things. But that really is a pretty different situation because, um, you know, our our lives and, and truly our rights aren't on the line. Uh, they're not being denied to us in the same way that they are in so many places. And, you know, I think a helpful uh, differentiator that I have actually a good friend um, who has a, a lot of experience working with the persecuted church. He, he likens uh, kind of two different types of persecution to, to squeeze and smash. And so squeeze being more of the, the social isolation, um, being uh, denied pre- presence, being uh, looked over for, for job opportunities as a result of your faith. You know, if you don't uh, follow a faith that's in the majority of this country, um, you know, you, you don't have many job prospects. Things like that are squeeze. It's like it's putting the pressure on. Uh, it's making life more difficult as a direct result of a person's faith. And then there's the smash side of that, which is more of the kind of the outrageous uh, types of things where, you know, someone may be uh, facing torture, they may be facing imprisonment, um, that sort of thing. You know, people are literally hunting them down because they are believers or because they're leaders in the underground church. And so that's kind of the smash side. Both are valid, are, are valid and very real and very difficult, especially, you know, as the intensity of each one gets turned up and, and they're hard in different ways. And so if you can imagine kind of being in the pressure cooker of a squeeze situation where you're just being squeezed on all these different sides of, of life, um, that, that really wears on people over time. Um, similarly, it doesn't take much explanation uh, or much imagination to, uh, to think about how the smash option uh, would be really tough for people to deal with too. It's a helpful um, delineation uh, of the two ways in which, or some of the primary ways in which people experience persecution, Jeff, and maybe that can serve as a good segue into a little bit more personally uh, for us at Uncharted. How how have we seen, and obviously we'll have to tell the stories or, and share the examples in ways that are safe, but um, how have we seen examples of both that, that squeeze squash, you know, the, um, and, and so, you know, I know, uh, for example, just to start things off in, in Serbia, that squeezed expression of persecution is a very prevalent thing that when you think of Eastern Europe, a country in Eastern Europe, you know, a country that is, um, Statistically, you know, a particular religious orientation, and yet in reality, uh, is is very suspicious and antagonistic towards Jesus and towards the gospel. We hear stories quite a bit from our field partners in Serbia that would be good examples of some of that that sort of squeeze experience or expression of persecution. 
Um, can you can you give us one or two examples of Serbia and from Serbia specifically about what that might look like for some of our field partners? Yeah, I think one of the big ones, and, and Serbia is someplace where it, it's it's easier, but it's diff- easier than some places, but it's still difficult in, in its own right. And I think you know there are a few people that we know of who basically the, their relationship with their entire families is is in question because they chose to put their faith in Jesus and be baptized as a result of of uh, you know obedience to Jesus. And you know that's a that's a very real situation. Um, my understanding is that the situation in Serbia is actually a lot better than it was a decade ago when um, Christianity, apart from orthodoxy, was really seen more as a cult and people would face a lot of ostracization, not be able to rent space. But even then, we've, we've had a partner who is trying to rent uh, space for a church and over and over and over and over um, whenever the landlord would say, well, what's this space for? And they would say, hey, well, we have, we have this church that we were looking for a place to meet. All of a sudden, the price would go up or the building would be occupied or the person would just flat out say, hey, we don't we don't want you here. And so like that's that's a very real even today, 2023, uh, a very real situation that believers in Serbia face pretty often. So half of our locations are rated um, through various organizations that track this kind of thing. They're rated as either uh, extreme or or severe in terms of the level of persecution. Um, and just like that's definitely more of the smash side of persecution that we hear stories about. Um, and like just to give some ideas of what that uh, means for people who live there is we're not talking about just isolation, but it's like um, around the world, over 300 Christians are killed um, every month for their faith. Uh, more than 200 churches are destroyed um, and over 700 forms of violence are committed against Christians. And that doesn't take into account like uh, governments or just the legalities around whether or not a person is allowed to be a believer or if they're thrown in jail for breaking the law of the country we live in. Um, so not to diminish, again, either form of persecution, but um, it does get pretty heavy in a lot of the a lot of the places where we have partners. Um, and we do hear stories of people we know and we care about that are, this is their reality of there's very much a potential of being killed or their buildings being destroyed um, or just suffering other forms of violence. Um, and we've had partners suffer forms of violence. Um, what, Ben, do you, um, is there something like a story from some of those more dangerous places that again, will probably have to be vague. Um, but what would, is there a story from one of those places that you would like people to be aware of, of just the reality that some of our field partners live day to day? Yeah, there, there is. Um, there's a couple of stories that for me, like, like sitting, sitting in a, a safe quiet sort of secretive room listening to the stories of these particular individuals will will be a pretty profound mark on me personally like just hearing the stories of these men and women from a particular part of the world who who were fleeing 
their country of origin because of persecution. Like just that general experience was incredibly profound. You know, you like the statistics we share and the definitions we talked about are, are good and they're helpful. But when you're actually sitting face to face with somebody who's experienced those things, um, it's an incredibly profound um, formational experience. And there was one in particular, and yeah, I have to be vague, which I, I hate because it robs the the significance of the story. But um, this individual um, through some pretty incredible, and I would say like supernatural ways, uh, had an encounter with Jesus while he was still in his country of origin, um, a country that was, is incredibly hostile towards, towards Christianity <clears throat> and towards people leaving their, their faith of origin and choosing to follow Jesus, very hostile towards that. And, uh, this individual was actually very active against Christian Christianity. He was sort of ha- had that like Saul to Paul conversion type story where he himself persecuted believers and, and openly was against uh, Christianity and then had a very profound um, uh, encounter, which Jesus would be the short way of saying it and had to go on the run uh, because of, of who he was and his status in, in different political branches and military branches, he had to go on the run uh, for his faith. And while he was still in his country of origin, uh, he was found and captured. And he talks about being tortured for his faith. And he talks about, um, you know, the basically uh, those who were persecuting him saying like, we will persecute you, we will torture you unless you deny Christianity and come back to faith of origin. And he didn't, and he underwent that persecution. And to hear him, I, I hate how I'm robbing the beauty of his story because to hear him talk about it is so powerful. But he talks about how there was a particular type of torture that he was experiencing um, where, I mean, it sounded literally medieval, uh, where parts of his body were being um, pulled apart, like literally pulled apart. And he he said at one point when that was happening, he had this profound experience where it was he could literally feel the hand of Jesus on his on, on the parts of his body that were being pulled apart and and how like all of the pain was washed away and how the presence of of Jesus washed over his body um, and and how he survived that experience. Um, and then there's a whole nother uh crazy element of his story of how like how he got out of there and how he was released and how he fled um to the country where he lives now where where we were hanging out together and so just hearing the story like seeing real life people who have um walked through this and and the incredible bravery to say the least um of how they continue in their commitment to jesus um i mean it it's it's so incredibly humbling. It like, it's almost embarrassing sitting, listening to their stories. Um, and just, you know, when I come back to my context and, and reflect on the things that I complain about or, or the things that I allow to, you know, make me question my faith or, um, grumble in my faith or whatever. And then you hear that story and it's just, it's just incredibly inspiring and humbling. So, Anyways, there's there's more, um, but that particular individual, I can see his face. I can still 
see where we were, where we were when he shared that story. Uh, and it made this whole conversation about persecuted church so incredibly real and visceral for me. Um, and, and there's others like that. And, um, you know, look at how the reality of a few of the places where we work, there are individual stories, but there's also like communal stories about how the church communally, um, the church as a body is, is really on the move, um, in, in the places of high persecution. And that's been really amazing to, to watch that and to have a small hand in that as well. It often strikes me how, especially coming from the West, uh, we see, we see torture, imprisonment, different types of persecution as being the exception as being these, um, you know, kind of unusual situations that are really dramatic. And in some ways, the, I mean, they certainly are dramatic, but at the same time, how normal, even expected they are in a lot of places around the world. But it's just part of what what you get if you're a believer. Like, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to be facing this at one time or another. And, you know, that's a <laughs> that, that kind of messes with my mind a little bit when I you know reflect on my own faith. Um, you know, if that's the norm that people are walking through every day, they're choosing to follow Jesus in the midst of that, you know, what, what's the impact that has for me? And, you know, as you shared, Ben, we've had several partners who've been beaten and tortured for their faith, who have faced different things. Um, we have a few actually who are, who are actively on the run now, some from authorities, uh, one that really stands out. Uh, she has moved to a neighboring country and, uh, she is literally uh, living in secret and trying to stay a step ahead of her own father, who has sent someone to kill her uh, in an honor killing as a result of her faith. And so, you know, that's just this extreme, crazy, and yet somehow pretty normal uh, for a lot of the world example of what what believers face in a lot of places around the world and what a lot of our partners are, are going through. Yeah, I I think most people um should try to take the opportunity of just talking to someone who is actually who's been beaten for your faith like i don't think most people here <laughs> have ever had that kind of experience and it um it's it changes how you think about a lot of things um i mean even just hear like hearing stories of people that I've met and liked and just be like, Oh yeah, I've had to flee my country. And if I go, if I go back, I might be arrested and I might not come home and I'm going to go still. Um, it really, um, makes you consider th what the gospel is worth, um, or maybe what it ought to be worth. Um, what does it, what what does it mean then like is it is it really this important does it matter this much not not even just thinking about me and my life I'm like well it does so i should read my bible more like not trying to take these stories as like a lesson of what does it mean to me um how, what can i gain from this but just like from a bigger perspective um what like what what is this good news like how, how good is it actually? Yeah. And the power of it, right? Like the real power of it, because you hear about in these stories, the incredible life transformation, like not just after they become a Christian, how, how powerful Jesus is in their lives, you know, walking them 
walking with them through persecution, but, but also just their own personal life transformation. Like you, you see uh, a person who is filled with, with hate, a person who's filled with violence, a person who's filled with, you know, distorted understandings of power and usage of power and, um, and, and then they encounter Jesus and it's like legitimate, real, dramatic, sustaining life transformation. And even that is, is also convicting in my own life. Like not only is they, not only do these people have a real commitment to the gospel to the point where they're really, they are willing to be persecuted. They not only have that commitment, but they've also embraced this deep life transformation and allowed the gospel in a very real way to affect the inner core of their being. And, you know, it's, it's convicting because I may not, I may not live in a culture where hate is expressed as violently or the power dynamics may not be as dramatic, but they're still there, right? Like there's still those same seeds are, are in me. Um, And so have I allowed the gospel to, to take root and to transform as much as I see happening in the lives of these people. And I don't mean to put them on a, pe- a false pedestal saying, you know, they're, they're perfect by any means. Um, but it is, you do hear just the realness of how powerful the gospel is and that it has so radically changed their lives that they are willing to, to be tortured for it. They are willing to be killed for it um, because it's so rich and beautiful for them. And it's like, gosh, <laughs> I, I want the gospel to be that rich and beautiful in my life too. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, just agreeing with you basically. Emily. <laughs> um, and that is, that's one of the most powerful testimonies, right? I mean, you know, you, you have somebody in a, in a place where externally society wise um, with their peers, there's nothing they gain and everything they stand to lose from following Jesus. And so just that all by itself, you know, puts a question in people's minds of why would this person make this decision? And so maybe, you know, one possibility is, well, they're just crazy. They have no idea what, what they're doing. The other is, well, there's something that they understand that I don't. And I think that's, you know, really where, uh, this, this radical life change is this incredible witness also in that, okay, well, this person has made this change that they've maybe talked to me about. There, there's no reason they should do this. They're facing a life of potentially a lot of hardship as a result of this decision they've made. And yet in the midst of that, they're not the same person they were. And, and the difference is all positive. You know, the person who is filled with, um, with hate or anger or, um, just, you know, had all, all of this messiness in their lives, all these different things like that person, I don't know where they went, but they're not here anymore. And there's this new person who looks the same, but you know, they've, they've taken over and, you know, we've heard a lot of stories too. Of like that is actually this incredible witness is the the transformed life, and this all happening in these really difficult contexts, and and people can't help but notice it because it's not even the words that are being said. It's this uh, just incredible testimony that's being lived out day to day that people stand up and notice. Yeah, I mean that it works on me as <laughs> as like a witness. I um, hear stories like this and talk to people who are willing um to put themselves at risk for the sake of the gospel and i'm like maybe there's something to this (laughs) maybe maybe this is true like maybe this is real um and it 
uh, I mean, it works on me. So <laughs> that's good. Um, we're, we've kind of already started talking about it a little bit. Um, but obviously persecution is heavy and it's dark. Um, and it's not good. We don't, we don't want our partners to be in these situations. Um, and yet there is a lot of hope that comes, uh, through the persecuted church. Um, we have seen it in our own location when like there's a terrible government takeover and things get flipped upside down and life gets much harder for Christians in these places and the church grows. Um, and our partners get bolder rather than s- scareder. <laughs> um, uh, so why, why is that? Why does that happen? It doesn't make sense. Um, so Jeff, that's an easy question. Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let you answer it for us. Yeah. I, I'm sure there are a lot of people in, in the missions world who have, have a much deeper understanding of this than I do, but you know, as I've reflected on it over the years, the, the one thing that really stands out is that, you know, I don't know very many lukewarm Christians in places with intense persecution. And so, you know, what you end up with is if you're going to, if you're going to take on the risk and take on all the difficulty and the persecution that comes with identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, um, you, you're going to mean it and you're going to be serious about it. And I think when you have you know, even a much smaller group of, of Christ followers who are deeply passionate about their faith, deeply passionate about sharing the good news, deeply passionate about serving their neighbors in Jesus' name, and just sort of doing all the things that disciples of Jesus are supposed to do, um, that, that can have a tremendous impact. And I think, you know, maybe one external reality is that a lot of places where this really intense persecution happens, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, well, life can tend to be hard in general. And so there, there's already a, like the status quo isn't working for people. Life is tough. Um, economics are difficult, all of these things. And so you kind of add in some of those external things that just make people question the status quo, question the norm. And then you, you add in uh, a church of people who are fired up and passionate about following Jesus. And, you know, God starts movements. God does incredible things in that type of scenario when those, those things come together. I think, too, it's interesting how you look back on history and when you see the church growing and then, and then today, too, in modern era. Um, when you see the church growing in those places that are so hostile towards Christianity, I, I believe one of the elements as well is just how... Um, beautifully and pro- profoundly different the, the way of Jesus and the way of his kingdom stands out. Um, the, the contract contrast is so much more stark. And so, and so it draws attention, right? And sometimes that attention is really negative attention, like what we've been talking about persecution and, and, and torture and things like that. But also it draws the attention of many other people as well, that why are these people living so counterculturally? Why are they responding in ways that are so dramatically different than what our culture would expect and anticipate? And um, when you look back on church history and you see how how the, the godly righteous response of followers of Jesus is so different than 
um, what what the world would expect, and it draws people to them. I think one of one of the examples, and I don't know all the historical data on this, but it, during the Roman Empire, when the, when the Black Plague was um, running rampant throughout the empire, there were literally you know people fleeing from from cities. So like it would it would show up, and people would flee from those cities, leaving all of these sick and uh, uh, weak and feeble people to just sort of die in the city on their own. And, and there's historical data of this group of people, um, these people who followed the way of Jesus, who were actually physically going into the cities. And so while everybody is fleeing out of those cities, these Christians were literally moving into those cities to take care of the sick and the dying. And, and just how they, again, how countercultural the way of Jesus is in the light of tribulation and persecution and suffering. And you see that, I mean, anybody who knows even a little bit about church history, like Constantine ruined the growth of Christianity when he, when he formalized and legalized Christianity as the, as the religion of the Roman empire. Um, and then as you watch though, there's a great article, uh, what that will put in the, in the podcast notes on exponential, uh, exponentials website about multiplication in the face of persecution. And there's some really fascinating current um, examples of how how the church has been growing in the face of persecution. And interestingly enough, some of the places that are listed in this article um, are places that we work in as well. Um, so all that to say, like, I just think another element that adds to the to the growth of the church in light of persecution is just how incredibly countercultural the way of Jesus is in the light of what's happening around people. So it draws and attracts people to that way of life. Yeah, and I love the Constantine reference. That's actually what I was thinking of as you'd started to talk. And, you know, I'm reminded of the phrase, the, the upside down kingdom, just how the, the ways of Jesus, the ways that the church has grown, you know, it's so, it truly is countercultural. It's counter to our whole way, typically, um, at, a, at a societal level of looking at, at power and influence and things like that. And, you know, for much of the world, the, the goal is to be in positions of power. That's how you grow a country. That's how you grow a kingdom is is through through power. And yet, uh, whether it's in a persecuted uh, location today, whether it's you know in the days of the early church before Christianity was sort of made official and given more rights, uh, the church grew the fastest. The church grew the deepest in times when you know that that official sort of power wasn't there. It's not there. It's quite the opposite, actually. And, you know, it's just this incredible thing of power through vulnerability or power through weakness. Um, and just for, for all kinds of reasons and reasons that I don't begin to understand, that's the fertile soil for the church to grow. And it's neat to see. It makes me sometimes think through, you know, how much do we really want to hold on to uh, Christianity's place of power in our own country. Um, at the same time, that's a that's a, another topic for another day, maybe. Uh, and yet, it is so just neat uh, is probably not the best word, but it, it's incredible. It's challenging. It's all kinds of things to see the church truly flourishing in the midst of hardship and difficulty in in various places around the world. Uh, and yet we hear story after story after story of those places where it's the hardest, those places where the rights are the fewest, um, where the squeeze and the smash are the most prevalent. 
Um, those are the places where very often, maybe not always, but very often where the church is absolutely thriving and growing uh, at a high rate. I think it's hard um, to take our own ideas of what it means for a church to be flourishing um, and look at the persecuted church and think like, well, obviously that's not how it's supposed to be. And in a lot of ways, it isn't how it's supposed to be. But if our idea of a thriving church is one that has a big building and has lots of people come in, um, maybe our idea of what uh, flourishing is, is not, is not right. Maybe um, may, what would be better for the church is to be in, be in the trenches more. Um, but I'm going to move on so I don't have to unpack that statement. As we start to wrap up um, and thinking about all of our partners, um, there's a lot. I mean, there's just a lot in this episode we don't uh, get into as much as we could or maybe ought to. Um, Like I said in the intro, it's easy to hear these stories and think it's happening somewhere far away. Um, And even when we do hear these stories and pay attention to them and are, um, and are looking to hear them, which is good. We need to honor these stories and give them the attention. I think it's also tempting, um, to use it just as like inspiration, um, or just to take it and be like, uh, see those people are doing it right. And now don't you feel bad that you're not, um, your faith, your faith isn't as strong in these people. It's like putting them on a pedestal. Um, I had this, I had this book whenever I was a youth group teen. It's called Jesus Freak. It was by DC Talk, and it was just stories of martyrs. Who, who didn't um, have that book? What what evangelical teenager in the '90s or early 2000s didn't have that book? Also, can we end this episode by singing that rap together? I think that would be great. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe as a special Christmas treat for all of our listeners. Um, I mean, I think they pr- they probably gave it away at every youth group event in like the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and I, this is not a, a diss on that book or pr- like, I'm not promoting it either. But um, I think there's a tendency to just collect stories like this and then use them as background Um and kind of ignoring again the idea that like these are real people experiencing this and the there are brothers and sisters we are part of the same body we s- suffer together um and it's it's part part of our responsibility is to care for people um so how do we do that it's i can't go to these countries and fix them <laughs> and even um even from a from a distance it's hard to make somebody's life situation different um and we don't necessarily want them to to flee um so what what i guess should our response be um whenever you do have the opportunity to talk to somebody who has been beaten by their faith what do what do i do with that then Emily, are you asking, what do you do when we're, we're in that conversation? What do we do after that? Uh, help me understand your question a little better. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, um, how, how do I care for this person and not just 
take their story as something like, well, that's nice. And I'll use that to make sure I do my, my quiet time in the morning. Um, how do I, how do I love that person? Well, yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. And I don't know that there's, for me, I don't know there's an easy answer to that because, you know, by nature, uh, I, I want to make things better. Uh, but, but to your point, like we, we can't do that. And even if we could do that, uh, on a small scale, I, I don't know from a, a truly, from a kingdom impact standpoint, you know, there's some cases where people absolutely need physical types of help, but, uh, you know, we also don't want to, uh, and it's just not practical to pull every persecuted person from the situation they're in for all kinds of reasons. And so to me, it really comes down to what does it mean to stand with a person, you know, that I have a relationship with, what does it mean to stand with that person in the aftermath or even in the midst of, you know, whatever type of persecution they're experiencing. And, you know, certainly listening, compassion, prayer, those things come to mind. But, but I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned, and this is essentially just based on feedback that I've gotten from various partners, persecuted and, and not, social isolation, um, feeling all alone, that's part of the purpose of persecution is to make you feel you're the only one. You, there's no reason for you to stay with, you know, your faith. Just, just give it up, go do your own thing, whatever. And I think just whatever we can do to communicate, you, you are not alone. You, you have brothers and sisters, you have family all around the world. I, I can never pretend that I truly understand what it's like to be, uh, you know, imprisoned and tortured for my faith. I've never experienced that. I, I may never. Um, I can't pretend that I know what that's like, but I can absolutely do everything I can to say to someone, we're, we're standing with you from thousands of miles away. We're praying with you. Listen to the stories. Um, you know, if there are practical ways that you can offer some sort of simple support, you know, maybe that's on the table at some times, but, but I think really it's just, it's a ministry of presence and it's a ministry of just expressing care in its various forms. I think those are some of the things that came to my mind as well is just like the words, the, the words connectedness and, and proximity. And, um, I, I agree with what Jeff was saying is it can feel, uh, overwhelming when you try to sit back and answer the question, what, what else, what can I do? You know, besides just be inspired by these stories. Um, and honestly, probably a lot of the answers, practical, tangible answers feel really trivial. Um, I, I am thinking about though. So like the example of, of Paul and other new Testament writers that, you know, the reason that they wrote their letters at times was to provide theological training or to give, you know, um, like ethical, uh, here's how to, here's how to follow Jesus and what it looks like. But there's also woven into a lot of the new Testament letters. The reason that it was written was, was to encourage people who lived in very, hostile environments and, and not to like diverge here on, on another topic, but even, even the times that Paul would reference, um, the, the coming of Jesus and, and when everything is set, right, like it was never meant to create a theological conversation or debate about the end times. It was always to provide encouragement that there's real hope for people who were living in very hostile environments. And, and, like we look at New Testament letters today as like 
big and profound and amazing and life altering. And, and they are, but to those people, it was just a letter. Like it was just, it was just a letter um, that they got in the mail type of thing. And I think sometimes that, that can get lost on like, obviously the content was significant, but it wasn't this big, profound thing. It was a, it was a piece of parchment that had words on it from a guy who was trying to communicate. I love you guys, even from a distance and you're not alone. And so I think there's, there's things like that, that we can do today. Um, and so this might feel like a sort of an abrupt, uh, connection, but I even think about like on our website, how we have the opportunity for people to write notes of encouragement that feels so trivial. That feels like, what can that really do? But to Jeff's point, it communicates that reality. You're not alone. Like I can't be there with you physically, but I want to communicate connectedness to you. I want to communicate a different type of proximity. Um, I want to communicate things that uh, are not just cliche, uh, you know, cute little sayings, but like real meaningful hope uh, about the uh, the coming justice of Jesus and the coming care and, and compassion of Jesus that will be ultimately expressed. So I think that's like, if, if there's ways that people can communicate that for the listener who's part of Uncharted, we have ways that you can do that. And, and I it would encourage us to not underestimate um, how profound of an impact they can have, even if it's really simple, you know, to, to write a note of encouragement over email to, to these brothers and sisters, reminding them they're not alone. If you're interested in what Ben said in our episode about sending notes of encouragement to our field partners experiencing persecution or difficulties, you can do that at our website at unchartedinternational.org slash write, that's W-R-I-T-E. And you can send a message to any of our partners in any of our locations. We will get them translated if necessary and then pass them along for you. It does really mean a lot to our partners when they hear from you and they really appreciate your remembrance and your prayers. You can also support our field partners by giving to our 2023 end-of-year fundraiser. Uncharted has a vision to see 10 unique locations where our field partners are bringing the gospel to unreached and overlooked places. Those are places where less than 3% of the population are Christian and there is no expression of a local church. If you'd like to support our partners financially, you can head to unchartedinternational.org give. Thank you so much for being a listener of Perspectives Unsettled. We love bringing this to you and we are excited about some of the episodes we have planned for 2024. So thank you for listening and stay tuned.